This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a special series on the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action on this week's edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. Over the next several episodes, we're going to explore the Albemarle FCPA resolution through a variety of lenses. We're going to open with Matt Kelly giving us an overview of the case, followed then with Karen Moore focusing on internal controls. Christy Grant Hart is going to talk to us about the holdbacks and the significance of those. And then we're going to have uh, some episode with lessons learned from the case. It's an interesting case, the largest FCPA case in 2023. In this part three of our exploration of the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action, we look at the issue of holdbacks. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action. We're going to take a little bit of a deep dive into it. So we're going to move over to Christy Grant Hart. First of all, Christy, welcome on this episode. I wanted to maybe ask you to focus on, we've heard a lot about clawbacks, and certainly starting in January, we didn't have clawbacks in this case, but we had the broader category of consequence management. Can you tell us what happened and how that played out and what might be the lessons learned? This is, this is the first thing that we've seen that um, happens since the March 2023 compensation incentives and clawback pilot program began. So I was actually sad there weren't clawbacks because I was hoping to do that fancy math that comes from whether or not it was successful or if you tried really hard and then you get either 75% or 100% of however much it wasn't that. They actually got this uh, $763,453 specific penalty reduction um, because of those bonuses that they withheld. So they were withholding bonuses under two different circumstances during the investigation, obviously, and afterward. And that was if the uh, person involved, obviously, was an employee who may have been involved in misconduct, but also they were keeping them uh, from anybody who had supervisory authority over those employees or who, and who knew or should have known or were willfully blind, one of my favorite phrases in the FCPA world, uh, about the conduct or the misconduct or should have known about it. So I think that the pilot program has been really interesting to people. They wanted to see if it would be successful. Uh, Some of the commentary that I read was talking about if it had been available to Goldman Sachs and and doing the math about how much that might have changed things in terms of clawbacks. So I think that the lesson here from the DOJ is really that if you're in one of these investigations, you're going to get a lot of internal pressure to say, not guilty until proven when, why are you withholding bonuses and this is ridiculous and on. But I think that this shows that the DOJ was impressed by that and that it is something to definitely consider if you're having one of these big investigations, that it, it will get you credit and you should be doing it. So the consequence part of this really drove, or I guess that's what I wanted to maybe drive home, that even if you can't claw back or you don't claw back, there are things you can do. And how can we use this case to broaden that discussion for compliance professionals? That There's a variety of strategies you can use to make clear the consequence of legal violation of the FCPA by every level at an organization. I mean, I think that this case that really shows that there was so much benefit of the doubt given to the company after they did all of this remediation. I think that it's thick and carrot, right? They got a lot of credit for doing 
the withdrawal of bonuses and the investigation that was happening while they were doing so much remediation. I think if you're a compliance officer, one of the things you do is stress all of the levels of what they did in terms of shifting the model. I agree with you, Matt. I thought that was fascinating to make it much de-risked uh, so that they took an entirely different way of approaching it, that they beefed up their compliance department, that they shifted these things. Tom, I really, I wanted to bring in a separate angle from this DOJ and SEC. We've had a lot of the SEC uh, doing all the, it seems to be doing the DOJ dirty work in FCPA all year long, right? We finally have this coordination. Do you think that this is the beginning of, are we going to get a lot more out of the DOJ? Is this their wait for it moment and this is the, the big fireworks? What do you think this says about the, the organizations, if any, with respect to FCPA enforcement? So Karen is going to talk to us about the SEC angle. So I'm actually going to ask to hold that question for her before we get to that. But let me ask you, Christy, one more. Everyone on this podcast dissects these DOSEC enforcement actions, and we try to draw out multiple lessons that we can bring forward. Do, do you think that this DOJ, the NPA, gives us some really new and not different, but new or shaded different lessons that we can bring? Picking up on Matt started, and you've also added to which is there seems to be a lot of credit being given to the company. And can we legitimately take that message to our clients? I think we can. I think that one of the things you always hear is you can't, you know, how you can't change a whole business model, right? We've been doing it this way forever. And I think this is maybe the most dramatic thing I've ever seen in terms of, no, we actually did entirely shift our business model. We stopped using these types of third parties. I think in terms of one of the more egregious facts was that the they were told, right, the company, I think it was with Indonesia, that the uh, third party said, hey, by the way, we're going to have to pay bribes in order to get this contract. You can't get much more specific than we're going to have to do this. And I think also we brought in the UAE and China, right? The SEC, I know, Karen, you're going to talk about this more, but China and the UAE were also part of this that weren't part of the DOJ's piece of it, which I thought was interesting in and of itself. And Karen, I'll be interested to see what you think about that. But I think that from a compliance perspective, they got so much credit that what you can do with this, it's quite a lengthy NBA, is to look at it and see, yes, you can shift the business models. Yes, we can beef up the compliance program. Yes, we can continue to withhold bonuses during investigations. That there are a number of things that you can use as a roadmap to be successful with these kind of investigations. And if you are not under these kind of investigations saying, look, this is the big wallop at the end. Why don't we do what they did to remediate to make sure that we never get in this kind of trouble and that if we do, we're successful in the outcome. Karen, do you have a question for Christy? Yeah, I do because I, I so much sign on to your dramatic shift in business model. I think it's really admirable that they hopped on that and that's a pretty huge sea change for the organization. Um, although you want to try and explore why why did they put this model in place to begin with, which is very likely at the request of some of their state-owned contacts that probably didn't just request that they use an agent, but probably recommended or actually did recommend in at least one case who the agents are. Do you see this maybe sending a message that sometimes you may have to forego that short-term profitable transaction in the interest of saying, if we can't do it, we're just not going to do it. 
Absolutely. That when you look at the, the way that the facts were put together, they knew that they had outlandish commissions. There was one where the person had been, I think, registered in China for three weeks or something like that. There was this, the switching out of one for another because they had such good relations, good relationships, air quotes, Jonathan, with the, with the government official. Right. So it was very clear what was happening. This wasn't hidden somewhere and nobody could find out about it. So I think, can is there the potential for proper use of third-party intermediaries and sales agents in the world? Yes, of course. It's not an impossible model. But when you have one that is as corrupt and as obviously corrupt as this model, I think a sea change may be the only way to, to fix it and maybe reintroducing it over time with a different model. But frankly, looking at the egregiousness of, we already know this is an outrageous commission. And of course, to Matt's point, when he talks about those internal audit findings, Internal audit was blinking red lights. Hey, we see it. This is a problem. Everybody knows. But I think I was reading Michael Volkov's in, uh, analysis of this. And I think one of the things he said that I thought was brilliant was, look, the board audit committee should have, the, <laughs> they should have these audit findings, right? The audit committee has the audit findings that say blinking red light, big problems, overly big commissions, things we can't control. And then at that point, the board has responsibility at some point here for not following up on those audit findings or at least continuing to ask those questions. So I think maybe, Tom, one of your things, what do we do now? Following up on those audit recommendations and making sure that some of these things happen and are remediated from the highest level is really important. And that's definitely something we can learn here. Mr. Armstrong, do you have a question or comment for Christy? Yeah, I was just going to say to uh, Karen and Christy's point, we often forget that bribed, uh, the business that you obtain through bribery is often not that profitable. And there's a, a great case study on Siemens, for example, where they analyze uh, the fact that obviously you're paying somebody a high commission. And then in a lot of bribery schemes, you don't get the business by bribing you get details of the best bid. Mm -hmm. so, so you might have business that on its face isn't profitable, and then you're paying somebody 10% to get it. So sometimes it's not business sense as well as not ethical sense. Matt, do you have a question or comment? Two, I'll keep them brief. But on the changing of the business model, one thing that stood out to me is that is a substantial change for a large company. And it, I don't know this for a fact, but I can't envision a scenario where that didn't happen without the direct blessing of the CEO and the board. That's a really disruptive thing to do. If that is how it happened at Albemarle, that shows that, yes, the top is now invested in making structural changes to clean this up. But then that brings us right back to, Christy, you were talking about Mike Volkov. Wouldn't the board have been seeing these internal audit reports six years ago saying this is a dumpster fire, we need to fix it? Then they didn't fix it then, but they wind up having to fix it now. And so there's a certain dichotomy there that just underlines how messy this case was. And Tom, the other comment I wanted to make was, I think you had said, talking about the Justice Department giving credit out left and right, that we have only seen half of this Justice Department equation that they'll give out such generous terms to people who cooperate. In theory, we still have those bigger sticks. I'm still waiting for when we actually see a bigger stick get used, where a company does get prosecuted, does suffer an indictment and a guilty plea, something like that, that where a lot of what we're talking about, such as being untimely in your self-disclosure, that's going to have some real consequence. And so far, I, I still don't see very much of that second half of, of what we're talking about. Bigger carrots and bigger sticks. I see the carrots, but I don't know that I see the sticks. Thank you for listening to this episode of a special 
podcast series from the FCPA Compliance Report on the Albemarle FCPA Enforcement Action. I hope you've enjoyed parts one and two, and I hope you'll join us tomorrow for part three, where I take a deep dive into some of the key lessons learned and how Albemarle was able to sustain a truly superior resolution in the face of some pretty damning facts. I hope you'll join me tomorrow for lessons learned on the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.